Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 35 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Retired J.A. Stout, a Marine Corps fighter pilot and naval aviator as my featured guest. Over a 20-year military career, he flew more than 4,500 flight hours, including 37 combat missions during the first Gulf War. Now a senior analyst in the defense industry, Stout has written 13 critically acclaimed books. They include Air Apaches, the men who kill the Luftwaffe, and hornets over Kuwait. But the topic of today's episode is his book, Fortress Ploest, the campaign to destroy Hitler's oil supply, published in 2003 by Casemate. It's a comprehensive account of the World War II Allied bombing campaign to destroy pivotal Nazi-controlled Romanian oil supplies. Stout joins us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Jay, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. First of all, I just want to thank you for your service to our country. Uh, thanks for saying so. I always get a little bit embarrassed because I enjoyed every bit of it, and I'm still getting retirement paychecks, so, so thank you for the support. Before we talk about the raid on Ploest, let's talk about the pronunciation because I think you, you pronounce it Ploest. Yeah, most of us, um, we look at it and uh, it, it should come out Ploesti, but uh, actually in the Romanian, it's, it's much closer to Ploest. Let's talk about the situation with Germany's oil supply in the late 1930s. Hitler had an oil problem from the get-go. Hitler began the war with only 40% of the, of the required oil that he estimated he'd need for the whole war. I'm not sure if that was uh, from your own book or from another source. Do you agree that he started the war with only basically less than half of the oil reserves that he would need? Yeah, he uh, Germany obviously does not have a... Uh a great deal of petroleum in the term of in terms of natural resources he was counting in part on the production of synthetic oil from coal of which germany has a uh, a decent amount of also um he had designs ultimately on the oil reserves in the southern part of the soviet union and in the Middle East, um, looked to uh, had visions of racing across North Africa and the Suez into the Middle East and capturing some of those oil reserves. So, uh, it, although he did not have what he what he needed at the start, he did have a plan. And of course, ultimately, uh, this this discussion is going to get to Romania, right. and of course. Uh, Eastern, Southern Europe, Romania had tremendous oil reserves as well as the refinery capacity to turn those that oil reserve or that oil, that petroleum, into the products you go to war with. And so in 1941, Hitler had something like 9 million tons in reserve of oil. A year later, by some estimates, he had only about 800,000 tons in reserve. So he was in dire straits. And so he soon, like you say, set his sights on Romania. 
you write that in your book, Plesht, located 35 miles north of Bucharest, was the center of the Romanian oil industry. Sitting at the foot of the Subcarpathian Mountains, the local sandstone is ripe with crude oil, and this came into play in 1856 when Ploesht became the site of one of the world's first oil refineries. By the 30s, it had 13 major refineries, nearly all operated by the world's major oil companies, including one which was even operated and owned by Standard Oil of, of New Jersey, which ended up being bombed during the raid. And it also produced a lot of uh, high-octane aviation fuel. It did. And, of course, uh, high-quality gasoline is, is an imperative when you're operating an air force. Uh, the Germ- Germans, uh, their air force was called the Luftwaffe, and uh, in air combat, um, any edge you can get, particularly from gasoline, uh, is, is an imperative. It's, uh, it's critical to success. How did Hitler sway the Romanians to allow him to basically take their production for his war machine? Well, Romania was producing for all of Europe prior to the war. And indeed, in the years leading up to World War II, Romania was aligned with Great Britain and France. And as their influence started to wane and Nazi Germany's influence started to grow, Romania started to feel somewhat isolated. Now, they also had a fairly considerable fascist faction in Romania. And when Romania was pressured by its neighbors to give up territory uh, by the Soviet Union, by Hungary, by Bulgaria, um, it was looking for whoever could protect it. And Germany offered that protection. Ultimately, Romania did have to give up some territory to its neighbors, but uh, Germany promised to take care of them after that. And in trade, of course, Germany had its eyes on Romania's petroleum production, which, you know, Romania uh, couldn't use it all itself anyway. So, so sending it to Germany made sense. The Romanian refineries ended up producing about 30% of the Axis power's oil supply. That's correct. Uh, So obviously a third, um, that made it an asset to be protected. Uh, Winston Churchill, even uh, long before the raid, uh, realized that that these refineries at Ploest was basically the taproot of German might. And so the idea for the first uh, Ploest bombing run was agreed upon at a uh, January 1943 meeting between President Franklin D. Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in Casablanca. But there was actually a previous raid. There was a a raid uh, in 1942, was there not, by uh, 13 uh, bombers uh, called the Halpro Raid. Yeah, this was known as the Halverson Project, which was often shortened to Halpro. It was named after its commander. Um, this was a group of bombers that had been specially collected, its crews especially trained. And the notion was that they would leave their training bases in the States, transit across the Caribbean, into South America, across the Atlantic to Africa, and then hopscotch the rest of the way into China to launch long-range raids against Japan, kind of similar to or mirroring what mirroring what uh, Jimmy Doolittle did in uh, 1942. We were looking for a way to harass the Japanese, keep them off guard. As it happened, 
by the time the HALPRO project got to North Africa, the bases in China it had anticipated using had already been captured by the Japanese. So there was no way to get to China and then subsequently fly raids against Japan. So they were told to stop and wait in North Africa. And while they were there waiting, on June 11, 1942, they were approved for a raid against the oil refineries at Ployesht. Now, they only had 13 aircraft and crews ready to do that. They took off late in the night, about 10 p.m. They took off as single aircraft, kind of fumbled through the weather and the dark, got into the vicinity of Ployesht, dropped their bombs, hit nothing really of value, and then continued on to Syria and Iraq and uh, Turkey because they simply didn't have the range to get back to Egypt. And it was kind of an abortive raid. But what happened was that it triggered or cued Germany that the uh, very vital refineries at Ployesht were within reach of the American bombers, and it had better put defenses in place in case the Americans had designs on those refineries in the uh, coming months or years. This meeting produced a plan for what would become Operation Tidal Wave, an air attack by the bombers of the U.S. US Army Air Forces based in Libya and southern Italy on oil ref refineries around Ploesht on August 1st, 1943. Why did the uh, Army Air Force decide to launch a raid from Benghazi? Was this their best option from North Africa? Yeah, well, Benghazi was kind of the center of gravity for American bomber forces in North Africa. Uh, the infrastructure was there. The logistics were in place. It was actually a complex of air bases that could handle a large number of bombers. Uh, it was there. It was what we had it was possible to reach Ploiesht from Benghazi. So, so it was what we had and it was what we used. So as the crow flies, Benghazi to Ploiesht is 2,700 miles, and the B-24 bomber had a range of 3,500 miles, or about the range it takes to fly from Florida to Seattle. In theory, for this mission, any given B-24 had 800 miles to play with, but it didn't work out they, that way for many of them. Can you tell us why? Yeah, and this is an interesting discussion. The B-24, or in fact, any aircraft, its range is going to vary depending on its age. Is it uh, worn out or is it newer? Uh, it's going to vary depending on its payload, um, you know, how much, how much weight is it carrying around. It's going to vary depending to some degree on weather. A number of factors come into play. In fact, um, the B-24 with extra auxiliary fuel tanks, which it carried for the Ploiesht raid, uh, did have the range to make it. However, the fuel was still an issue because, number one, when you fly uh, in formation, the lead aircraft sets his throttles. Everyone else flies formation, and to do that, they have to jockey their throttles around to stay in a position. And that jockeying of throttles causes fuel consumption to increase. Now also, once the battle was joined uh, over and around Ploiesht, 
a lot of those aircraft were shot up and lost a lot of fuel from the damage from the holes caused by anti-aircraft fire and uh, German and Romanian fighters. I read uh, somewhere, either in your book or another source, that one of these uh, aircraft actually returned to Benghazi with something like over 300 bullet holes in it. Uh, do you remember that story? Yeah, it, it was it was gruesome. And, um, you know, the, the holes could be caused by anything from uh, shrapnel from a large anti-aircraft round or by um, soldiers with small arms, rifles and pistols. And um, that wasn't isolated. Uh, uh, most of the aircraft came back uh, pretty well shot up. There were actually no reconnaissance flights over the refineries before the mission because the mission planters were afraid that would tip the hand of the Germans that the Allies were about to make a bombing run. But as you, as you just discussed, unbeknownst to the Americans, the Germans had already uh, kind of fortified that position pretty well. As you note in your book, the, the Americans knew there would be light anti-aircraft guns and explosive barrage balloons. So uh, what are these explosive barrage balloons? I, I'm not familiar with that. Actually, they, the balloons were not explosive in themselves. If, if you're familiar with the concept of a barrage balloon, they are typically um, gas-filled balloons that are tethered to the ground inside or around important targets and they're tethered with heavy steel cables and the idea being that aircraft can't fly through or around them at least not very closely without running into them and, and running the risk of those steel cables cutting through their aircraft and causing them to crash now the romanians and the germans kind of enhance the lethality of these barrage balloons by attaching explosives to them such that if an aircraft made contact with those cables, those explosives would explode and, um, and bring the aircraft down. So let's talk about the conditions before the raid at the Benghazi Air Base. How long had this air base been in operation? Uh, it, it had been there in uh, various forms for probably, oh, a year or so. The uh, Germans in North Africa had surrendered about four months earlier in May of 1943. By some accounts, the, the, the base itself was, I guess, set up as best the, as the Air Force could get it set up, but the conditions there were pretty abysmal. You note, or, or at least someone has noted, that by all accounts, the, the quarters were overrun with fleas, kangaroo rats, locusts, <laughs> scorpions, and grasshoppers with little or no fresh water, no means of bathing adequately, and the only respite was a two-mile walk to bathe and cool off in the Mediterranean. Well, it was, a, uh, it was not a comfortable place to be, but you got to remember the, the war planners had to make a lot of choices, and the, 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 logist, the logisticians, the supply folks, you know, they could bring in the comforts of home or they could bring in bombs and bullets and gasoline and aircraft parts. So there was a trade that had to be made. And if the men could perform in those kinds of conditions, then um, then they would. And they, in fact, did. There was also this fine red sand. And I used to live in Paris many years ago. It was amazing. Sometimes during the winter, uh, Paris itself would be covered in this kind of fine red dust which obviously had come up, well, it wasn't obvious if you didn't know, but it had apparently had come up from North Africa. 
and I guess it's the same type of sand that used to to get into the engines of these B-24s, fouling spark plugs and and damaging cylinders. Uh, The engines in these B-24s, due to these desert conditions, had to be rebuilt about every 50 or 60 hours of operation, operating life, compared to, what, uh, 300 hours normally? Yeah, and you consider that, uh, take a, a craftsman who wants to polish something, and that polish he uses usually include some sort of abrasive and that abrasive was very similar to the to the sand in uh, that part of north africa Uh, very fine as and as you indicated it got into everything it got into um, pistons cylinders uh, oil seals fuel seals hydraulic lines and um, it just ate things up so that as you noted, uh, the logisticians were, were hard-pressed to keep the parts coming in so that they could be changed regularly. Those aircraft were, were pretty beat up. But you were in, uh, you were in the, the first Gulf War, uh, Desert Storm, is that right? That, that's, that's correct, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and, and it was hot there. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. How have our, me- our means of coping with this, these extremes in the desert in a desert climate like that changed from World War II to the present. Desert Shield started in 90 and and Desert Storm the actual fighting uh went from uh, January through February of 1991. But when we got there in 1990 it was hot and and you know we've all been hot before but when you're hot and you're working in the open on very hot aircraft parts it's it's difficult and um you know but it gets done we're 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 fairly um we're fairly tough whether we think we are or not they got it done in world war ii we got it done during desert shield and desert storm um and again the same things applied most of the most of the men in desert shield desert storm were outside in tents just the same way they were in Benghazi although the uh, medical care was better and there were a few air-conditioned spaces that people could escape to if they needed but still hot is hot and I guess the same challenges affecting the operational readiness of the aircraft as well right yeah yeah the uh, logisticians could have brought us the logisticians could have brought us air conditioners for our tents, or um, they could bring us airplane parts. They couldn't bring everything. And uh, obviously, the most important things to fight a conflict is what they concentrated on. You flew uh, F-18s, I believe, in the Gulf. And so what I'm saying is the the sand that would kick up from the desert and and get into the spark plugs and the engines, did that pose the same kind of operational problems in Desert Storm that it did in World War II for these B-24s? Yeah, it did to a degree. In fact, uh, there were special procedures put into place and, and special checks that were made because of the fine dust uh, of the desert, and it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It would get in your teeth. It would get in your weapons, obviously get in the aircraft. You know, you got a little oil on the aircraft, and, and that attracts uh, that very fine sand like a magnet. And um, it did pose some maintenance issues. So the B-24s themselves were kind of derisively known 
among the crew as pregnant cows, flying boxcars, banana boats, <laughs> and, and furniture vans. No one seemed to admire the B-24 Liberators for their handling prowess. Uh, uh, and uh, as I mentioned, you have flew uh, F-18s in the Gulf, and that's a whole different world from a strategic bomber. But what would you imagine... And I assume you have. Have you ever flown a, an antique B twenty four? Are there any left that that are operational? Actually, there there are a couple left that uh, that are still flying. You're right. There is a world of difference between a modern fighter and a World War II strategic bomber. I imagine the B twenty four probably flew a lot like a, a log wagon without uh, power steering or power brakes and without the luxury of being able to pull off to the side of the road when something went wrong. In fact, I know that uh, for a while the um, there were suggestions that anyone assigned to fly the B-24 must be bigger than a, a certain height, which escapes me, and, and heavier than 160 pounds. You really had to horse the thing around. It was, it was an effective bomber, but it was um, inelegant in appearance, to put it politely. I mean, you really had to muscle the controls because the hydraulics were kind of primitive. They were known to be a bit leaky, right? Everything on that airplane leaked. Uh, <laughs> you, you had to be... Um, you had to be strong and have some stamina. These bombers themselves had no uh, fighter escorts, right? No, we had no fighter in service at that time, which could take the bombers all the way from uh, Benghazi to Ployesht and back, or even partway. So they were pretty exposed, and you had a nose gunner and a tail gunner, is that right? Yeah, there was a, uh, at that time, um, there were a couple guns in the nose, not a classic uh, nose turret like they had later in the war. There was a top turret with two guns. There was a um, bottom turret. There were two waist gunners, one gun apiece, and there was a tail gunner with two guns. So it was decided that this first raid, in uh, night, uh, B-24 raid in 1943, would be low level in order to avoid radar and better hit the targets as these heavy bombers were not particularly accurate at high altitude. Yeah, well, planners um, back in D.C. at the, uh, at the uh, thinking houses had determined that it would take a thousand planes on a single raid to inflict the sort of damage on the refineries at Ployesht that they, that they wanted. They, uh, the aircraft bombing from a high altitude were fairly inaccurate. Um, we're talking about accuracies of thousands of feet, if not um, miles in some cases. So one way to get around that, because they only had less than 200 aircraft rather than 1,000, one way to get around that was to pick critical nodes in the refineries you know, those that if damaged would cause the most harm and then hit them from low level. You can imagine that if you drop a bomb from 200 feet rather than four miles, uh, number one, it's much easier to see the target. And uh, number two, that bomb doesn't have far to fall. It's, it's not going to get blown by the wind. Uh, it's not going to be... Um, 
thrown off course or off trajectory by a bomber that's uh, out of trim or slightly out of position. Um, a bomb dropped from very low level is going to hit something and, and damage it. That was that was one of the reasons. And they're, they're, they, if you're flying at that low level, it was much more difficult for any sort of aircraft that would, would take off after the raid itself to actually go after these low-level targets, right? Oh, you're talking intercepting fighters? Yeah, interceptions. Yeah. Number one, uh, an intercepting fighter couldn't attack from below, which, which most of them didn't. But it was difficult to attack steeply from above and dive away because if those bombers are 100 or 200 feet off the deck, um, there's no time for an attacking fighter to recover. So, in effect, they were limited to attacks from oh, roughly the same altitude as the bombers. So, they were forced to not only pay attention so that they didn't fly into the ground, but uh, they also had to fly an accurate gunnery run and then endure the uh, machine gun defenses, the 50 caliber machine gun defenses of the bombers. So, again, low level, aside from making it really hard to miss, made it uh, a little bit safer from enemy fighters. We're talking, what, like 150, 200 feet off the ground in places? Yeah, or even lower. Good Lord. It's amazing. Yep. That's a double-edged sword, of course, because if you're flying that low, you're within the weapons envelope of just about everything in the world from big 88 millimeter anti-aircraft guns to lighter uh, machine cannon to machine guns to rifles to pistols to little old ladies shouting dirty names. Um, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> uh, everybody in the world had a shot at you. Uh, and conditions on board the plane were not uh, were not the greatest either. I mean, uh, moving from one part of the plane could be dangerous. A passage from the from the cockpit to the rear required crewmen to cross a narrow catwalk in the middle of the bomb bay. One false move and you might fall straight through the bomb doors. Before a bomb could be dropped, uh, you actually had to have a crewman go back into the bomb bay on the catwalk, lean over, and pull the pin. Yeah, usually the bombardier or some other designated person in the crew would, as you indicated, go back and uh, pull the pins from the bombs and just check the general integrity of, of the, the bombs and the bomb bays. That was done uh, generally well prior to entering the target area while everything was still fairly fairly smooth and nobody was shooting at you yet. You write that five days in advance of this mission, a defecting Romanian pilot spread the news to the Allied command that, in fact, Ploest was well prepared for such an attack. But by then it was too late. So was there ever any discussion when they learned this, when the Americans and the Allies learned that, that the Ploest was so heavily defended? Was there any, any discussion about actually aborting this mission? Yeah, actually the mission was quite controversial, even from the time of its inception all the way until it was launched. In fact, the uh, general in charge early on had circulated a petition, which is really, really odd, an unusual thing. You don't do that in the military, but had circulated a petition among his commanders to um, have, the, have the mission canceled. And of course, um, other people 
question the tactics. As I mentioned before, uh, the aircraft would be in range of all the all the defenses that the Romanians and Germans could muster. And then when um, those concerns were heightened, when that Romanian defector uh, passed his news, there certainly was was no point at which it became too late until they arrived over Ploiesh. The mission could have been called off at any time, but I think there was a feeling that too much political capital, too much training, too much uh, of everything had already been invested to call the raid off by that point. Um, Too many people were committed to it. So the plan uh, was to cross the Mediterranean and the Adriatic, pass near the island, uh, the Greek island of Corfu, cross over the Pindus mountain range in Albania, and then cross what was in southern Yugoslavia, enter southwestern Romania, and turn east toward Ploest. And if the planes were crippled during the uh, bombing raid, they were to try to reach British-controlled Cyprus with Malta, Sicily, and Turkey as alternate choices uh, as landing sites if they could not make it back to Benghazi. Is that right? Yeah, it was a pretty complex plan. It covered uh, a lot of geography of different types. You had the Mediterranean Sea, as you noted, the Adriatic, all those mountains, um, uh, inland areas. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the, the British controlled a number of alternate landing sites. And then there was Turkey, which was neutral during the war. And uh, if the airmen had diverted into Turkey, they could expect to be interned. That is, uh, not necessarily made prisoners of war, but uh, held and not allowed to return to their countries until some sort of negotiation or agreement was reached. So they flew over Corfu, and uh, unfortunately, before they even reached Corfu, uh, they lost a plane that just kind of uh, exploded. That was uh, Wongo Wongo was the name of that B-24, if I remember correctly. That's right, yeah. uh, It just kind of fell out of formation, kind of tumbled out of control, uh, fell about 4,000 feet and hit the sea and it exploded. And no reason has been determined for it. It could have been an autopilot failure or an imbalance in fuel tanks or obviously something that made it uh, unflyable. But, you know, that's that's a mystery to this day. And then another B-24 dropped down below cruising altitude to check on this Wongo Wongo uh, and uh, could find no survivors or spotted no survivors and then this aircraft tried to get back up to altitude, realized it couldn't. It was too heavily loaded with fuel. And where did that one end up? Do you recall that story? Yeah, that um, that was simply uh, poor head work. The, the pilot of that particular aircraft know, knew or should have known that there would be no survivors. There was nothing he could do for them anyway as heavily loaded as his aircraft was and the rest of them were, there was no way uh, that he could drop down to sea level, check things out, and then expect to climb back up and catch the formation and and make the mission. They just ended up diverting back to Benghazi. So that was the effective loss of one aircraft. Um, 
simply through poor head work. So each flyer was given an escape kit with compasses, steel files, vitamins, legal currency of any possible Middle East country they might be forced to, in which they might be forced to land, uh, $10 in solid gold by weight, and tiny compasses, as I mentioned, sewn into the linings of their flying clothes or flying suits. So one gunner remarked that he had so damn many compasses sewn into his clothes that the only way he would be able to walk was north. (laughs) 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 But, um, yeah, they were well prepared, but it began, the mission began badly. Uh, one of the planes from the 98th bomber group, I believe never got off the ground in Benghazi. It ran out to the end of the runway, crashed and exploded, killing all aboard instantly. That, did they do you know what was the cause of that crash yeah what happened was the, the aircraft actually did get airborne had an engine failure and of oh, course is uh, okay. as heavy as it was became very difficult to control uh, the aircraft actually struck a concrete light pole not far from from the runway and of course that caused a, a crash loaded with bombs uh fully loaded with fuel you can imagine that was a raging inferno but actually instead of killing all the crew uh there were two survivors from that who were thrown clear so that was quite remarkable so of the 160 some bombers who actually crossed the target they did drop their whole bombing load in one go, right? Yeah, the aircraft, that, that was not a, a place to do any sort of reattack. The uh, crews dropped their entire loads uh, on a whichever target they chose and then just kept going, uh, tried to reform and, and get out of there as, as quickly as possible. You can imagine they were under fire from uh, all different quadrants on the ground and there were very effective German and Romanian fighter defenses uh, above and around them. It was, it was no place to linger. In your book, there are you know, several black and white uh, images, and one of them is this, arguably one of the most iconic aviation images to ever come out of World War II of a B-24 dubbed the Sandman. So what's the story behind this? It was piloted by uh, the pilot. Was, his name was Robert Sternfels. And the image is taken just after it clears its target. So who was taking this image? Was it someone in another B-24? Yeah, this is uh, one of the classic images of the war. And as you indicated, uh, the Sandman is just starting to climb out from a, a roiling inferno of smoke and fire. That is one of the refineries that's been hit. And that image was actually captured from a automatic camera aboard the aircraft or the B-24 in front of them. Uh, several of the aircraft or the bombers were fitted with these automatic cameras so that they could do essentially what we would call today bomb damage assessment or battle damage assessment. They wanted to know or have proof that the... Um, that the raid was effective beyond the word of mouth they would have gotten from from the air crews. The whole bombing raid on the target itself lasted less than half an hour. Is that right? Yeah, it was. It was over pretty quick. Even though uh, it inadvertently happened in two different phases, uh, it happened quick. And again, it, it wasn't a place where people were going to hang around. 
Of the some 160 aircraft that actually crossed the target, only 93 returned. 93 made it back to Benghazi. Um, most of them were, were really badly damaged, and, and a lot of them never flew again. Um, 19 landed at uh, Allied, primarily British air bases uh, in Cyprus. Seven of them went into Turkey and were interned, and those crews were repatriated uh, within the next several months. They didn't stay there till the end of the war. And then three aircraft went into the sea. And how many lives were lost in this mission approximately? 310 American airmen were killed. A mm. uh, hundred and eight of them were captured by the Romanians and the Germans and were held until Romania or Ploiesk was liberated by the Soviets in August of 1944. And then another 78 airmen were interned in Turkey. Um, those aircraft had obviously diverted into Turkey. Uh, the aircraft were held by the Turks, but the, uh, the internees, the, the airmen, were um, returned to the Allies before the war ended. So one of the uh, crew members of one of these B-24s was quoted as saying, we knew it was a disaster, and knew that in the flames shooting up from those refineries, we might be burned to death, but we went right in. What's your response to that? Well, the flippant thing to say is um, that's what we're paid to do. That's what we were trained to do. That's what the mission assignment was, and that's what you're expected to do. But you consider it from a personal level, and when he said burned to death, literally planes caught on fire fire because it was so hot in those refineries and uh, some of those airplanes went down and the crews burned to death um, it's it's um, hard to explain it's hard to talk about it's kind of an emotional thing but um, you do what you're supposed to do and uh, part of it is you're not going to turn back because the guy next to you, he's not turning back and he's not turning back because you're not turning back. Um, you're not going to, you're not going to let your buddies down. You think of all the preparation that went into the mission, all the training, all the material, the fuel, the bombs, all the work. Um, it was to get across those refineries, drop bombs and destroy them. That's what they were there for. And, that's why they did it. So you write uh, in your own book that the the last bomber reached Benghazi 16 hours after takeoff, the Liberty Lad, with two engines out on one wing, no hydraulics, no brakes, and no instrument lighting. The plane touched down in the darkness and coasted for a mile before coming to a stop. The hulking, broken beast it was a perfect metaphor to mark the end of what was a watermark in the history of military aviation. The longest, bloodiest, most heroic bombing mission in history was over. A bombardment commander described the mission as the worst catastrophe in the history of the Army Air Corps. To that point in the war, it was the worst catastrophe in terms of bombing missions in the history of the Army Air Forces. And um, 
I'm not certain that it changed the course of the war one whit. I don't know that it shortened the war by a day. If I put myself in that time and place and consider the strategic importance of Ploiesht and the damage that might be done, which was considerable even though the mission was not flown as planned, I might give it a try as well if I had been one of the commanders. It was that important. But it was like a uh, sad Viking saga. I mean, you think about 310 dead men. These were people's baby boys. These were somebody's brother or husband, um, somebody's pal from childhood, somebody's roommate or tent mate from the service. These are, these are real people. Everyone had a story. And, um, and that goes across all the combatants. Um, war is a gruesome, horrible, awful thing. So would today's Air Force or Navy uh, be as likely to send crews into such horrific battle conditions? I should think so. I would hope so. Uh, as awful as that sounds, if the balance of the war rests on executing missions of this nature, then that's what needs to be done. That's why we have men and women in uniform. Um, that's why they exist. They exist to fight, even in gruesome, seemingly grotesquely risky missions. You write that within a few weeks of the attack... 40% of the refining capacity at Ploesht had been taken out of service, but you note that by the time a consensus had been reached as to the amount of damage caused, only a matter of weeks after the attack, Ploesht was producing more fuel than it had before the strike. Someone noted that the Nazis brought in 10,000 slave laborers to make the repairs. Is this how they were able to get back online so soon? Certainly the, the slave labor helped with the grunt work, but um, there were a lot of skilled engineers in uh, Europe and Germany that were sent to Ploiesht. Uh, certainly the workers who were there daily knew their business. Um, Hitler himself made the repairs of Ploiesht a priority. Uh, nothing was to be put in the way of those repairs. And every resource available was to be directed to help affect those repairs. Um, so that um, although a great deal of damage had been caused by the raid, um, the efforts of the, the Germans and the Romanians uh, did bring it back into service within a uh, very short time, um, within about the amount of time that it took to actually assess how much damage had been done. This was not the end of the story for Ploesht uh, and the Allies uh, trying to destroy the refineries. Subsequent high-altitude bombing raids that continued into 1944 knocked out the refineries for the rest of the war. Did these raids impact the Germans' ability to respond to D-Day, which was uh, in June of 1944? Yeah, uh, allow me to back up just a little bit. The low-level raid on Ploiesht was in many regards quite successful. They uh, inflicted a, a lot of damage. Um, and again, the, the, the Germans, the Romanians had to direct a lot of resources to uh, repair that damage. 
had the Allies or the Americans been able to go back two weeks later and do it again, and then go back another couple weeks later and do it again and keep up a campaign, they would have turned Ploiesht into rubble within a couple, two or three months. But they didn't have the aircraft or the crews to do it at that time. So Ploiesht sat unmolested essentially until the spring of 1944 when the Americans mounted a series of approximately 20 to 25 high-altitude traditional bombing raids. And they started going back days later, a week later, the next day. It was a regular campaign, and the Germans and the Romanians couldn't keep up with the damage, such that Ploiesht was about out of the war by the time the Soviets showed up in August of 44. Relative to D-Day, enough damage was being done such that it probably did have some effect on Germany's ability to move its forces around and resist the Allies in Normandy. But I'd offer that there were a number of other factors at play there that, that worked against the Germans. Number one was the Eastern Front with the Soviets. Number two was uh, poor decision-making up and down the chain of command all the way to Hitler. Uh, but but certainly uh, availability of, of oil did did play a role. So did it did this uh, raid on Ploest uh, have any impact on the uh, uh, Germans' defeat in uh, the Soviet Union? Certainly it played a role. Um, Germany relied on its mechanized forces to a great degree to be able to quickly respond to the Soviets. Um, but they were up against massive armies rather than just a an army and uh it, it made it tough in a number of regards and this the scarcity of oil caused by the loss of uh, ploiesh certainly played a role the refineries at ploiesh were able to make this very high octane fuel which was so important for aviation fuel uh, at that time it wasn't jet fuel uh, at, during that era because for piston-driven aircraft, you still needed high-octane high, high fuel. Am I wrong? Yes. High-octane fuel is actually uh, quite a bit more complex and difficult to produce than um, jet fuel, which essentially is a, a variant of kerosene. Jet fuel is easy. High-octane fuel is difficult. And uh, with the loss of Poyash, that was the loss of one more source of high-octane aviation fuel. And Germany had to rely on it coming from other places. And it was not as readily available as it had been. And its aircraft did not perform as well as they might have had they had uh, higher octane fuel. But there was another factor in, in the fact that they didn't have, have that high octane aircraft fuel. They were not able to train their pilots to the extent that the Americans were. I mean, you know, uh, American pilots in Texas had all the had all the fuel they needed, and uh, but um, in contrast, the the Germans apparently had to keep a lot of their aircraft on the ground because that fuel was precious in battle, and the pilots were not as well trained. And then Hermann Göring remarked after the war to someone that uh, one he his idea was one reason the Germans lost the war was because they the pilot training, the, the the German Nazi pilots were not any match for the Allies uh, for one reason, they didn't have the training. 
Yeah, that's uh, you make an excellent point, and it is a very good point in that the Germans simply could not train enough pilots because they did not have the fuel available. And this didn't even necessarily have to be high-octane fuel. American pilots, um, British pilots, pilots from the Commonwealth had much more training towards the end of the war than their German counterparts, in large part because they had the luxury of, of time and gasoline, whereas the Germans, they were pushing pilots who were only barely trained into combat before they were ready. Uh, and a lot of that was due to the fact that they just didn't have the gasoline to, to train them with. And there's another element to this, uh, how the uh, oil from the refineries in Ploesh was actually shipped back to Germany. And there were basically two uh, ways. One was uh, via rail, and the other was, uh, crucially, via the Danube. And I uh, luckily uh, spent some time in Vienna a couple of years ago at a uh, astronomy conference and stayed a, at a hotel that was right on the Danube, and I was shocked at the amount of cargo traffic up and down even today the Danube. Apparently, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, the British Royal Air Force, during the war dropped thousands of magnetic mines into the Danube, which pretty well stymied the, the ability of the Germans to, to ship a lot of that plushed oil back to Germany. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely correct. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of those mines are probably still stuck in the mud at the bottom of the Danube. <laughs> Is that right? But of course... Yeah, as as you noted, the uh, the uh, Danube was a, a a great waterway for for moving uh, all sorts of material up and down, uh, back and forth where it, it it needed to be. In fact, you kind of touched obliquely on on another point. The Allies only had so many bombers, and they could only hit so many targets. And one camp felt that most of the resources ought to be directed against German rail lines, railways, and marshalling yards, because the thinking was that if you destroyed all the railroads, the Germans couldn't move material, to include petroleum. The other side of the thinking on that one was that there were an awful lot of railroads. It was impossible to, uh, to destroy them all, and they were relatively easy to repair. The other camp believed that it would be more important to direct the bombing campaign against oil targets, make the oil targets a priority because a war machine cannot run, a modern war machine cannot run without oil. Refineries, uh, ployashed aside, aren't easily repaired. They can't be moved. They can't be hidden. There's only a few of them. And so um, I think in the end, I would bet most people would say that the strikes against the oil targets were the most important. So what surprises you most about the lo the, this low-level raid on Ploesht? You, you know, I, I think it's the human nature aspect of it. Uh, folks had to think about a way to try and take it out of the war. And human nature came up with an answer. And human nature in the execution of the raid, which we didn't talk about too much, but it was botched to some degree. Human nature corrupted its own plan. But then human nature aboard each one of the individual aircraft acted such that um, 
they took things into their own hands when the plan started to come apart and they delivered effects against the target that were outside of what was planned to make the raid at least a partial success. And then you just think of the human nature of, you know, we touched on it before, having the guts and the fortitude to put oneself into such magnificent danger. Um, that's a remarkable thing to me. And then um, I would guess that uh, human nature is such that most of those men suffered to some degree from PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. Um, it was a horrific thing, and I'm glad I did not have to do it. As a fighter pilot, when you hear the word ploeshed, what goes through your head? It's just a tragic modern-day Viking saga with real-world life and, and death. It, it was it was a... Um, it was a tragedy. Jay, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure. I uh, have my author's site on Amazon. I'm Jay A. Stout, and uh, I can be reached uh, via email at jastout, all one word, at usa.net. And then uh, there's my website, jastout.com. Um, and I would welcome anybody who, who wants to talk about this or any other aspect of World War II aviation. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Jay Stout, thanks for helping us better understand this historic and largely underappreciated piece of World War II aviation history. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Bruce. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.